All right. Hope you guys all have had a good day so far. Uh, and for those of you that are dads, happy Father's Day. Uh, and for those of you that maybe want to be dads someday, happy, you know, early Father's Day to you guys. Um, as Kyle said, my name is Zach. I'm one of the staff members here at H2O. Um, and I personally just love the holiday of Father's Day. Uh, it's really a great day and it honors all things dad and what dads are great at, whether that be just teaching their kids or their sometimes funny jokes. Um, Father's Day is just great at honoring dads. And when I think about something that my dad always did really well, it was really just laying out the expectations of the house. So I remember multiple talks of like, if you do X, Y, and Z, then like, you're allowed to live in this house, basically. If you don't do these things, then you're not welcome in this house. Like, do the things around this house that I tell you to. These things were expected of me. Uh, and there were often things my dad was already doing, skills that he'd teach me. Um, and it would often take times of failure and correction from my dad to continually learn these new skills. And even then, once I grasped the new skills and finally understood what he was teaching me, he'd then take those skills and say, now that you know this, we can teach you something deeper. We can teach you another application of these. And the passage we're going to be looking at today comes at a unique point in the Gospel of Mark where the disciples just begin to get what Jesus is teaching them, similar as a son or a daughter begins to understand what their dad is finally teaching them. Uh, and at the crux of this passage is Jesus' really radical call of expectation he has for all who want to follow him. And this is Jesus' like, if you want to live for me, if you want to live in my house one day, you must do X, Y, and Z. You must do these things. And so I'm going to be honest with you, like, for, this passage has a lot of difficult things to just take in. And some of it's probably going to rub some of you the wrong way. But it is my hope that the Spirit just exhorts you to live unashamedly for, for the gospel. Similar how our friend just shared of going to other countries, living unashamedly for the gospel that you, that you believe in. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive right into the scripture. Father, I thank you for this day. Lord, I praise you just for the goodness of your word, for the goodness of who you are, for revealing yourself to us, Lord. God, I pray that if we came into here today, Lord, with a prideful heart, with a heart that is not willing to just be taught what your scripture has to teach us, Lord, I pray that you soften our hearts, make us contrite of spirit, Lord. God, I pray that everything said today would be of you. If there's anything said not of you, Lord, I pray that it falls upon deaf ears. Um, but what is of you, God, I pray that it falls upon humble and soft hearts. God, because this is your truth, this is your word. And I just pray that you reveal yourself to all of us here today in a different and unique way. Say this in your name. Amen. So if you've been with us this summer, you know that we've been going through the Gospel of Mark together. Uh, and we're going to be in Mark 8, 31 through 38 today, which is smack dab in the middle of the book. Um, and unless otherwise stated, all the scripture is going to be out of the CSB version of the Bible if you want to follow along. So starting at verse 31, this is what it says. Then he, Jesus, began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes be killed, and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? 
For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So that's a lot to take in right away. It's a rather thick passage, and like I said, this happens right in the middle of the Gospel of Mark, and it signifies a turning point in Mark's tone and the overall theme of the book. So if you think about everything we've read and just learned in the Gospel of Mark so far, what has Jesus been doing? He's been going around, casting out demons. We've seen him walk on water. He's healed lepers. He's made the deaf hear. Or hear. He's made the blind see. He has done a lot of miraculous things, and his teachings have all been about the kingdom of God. And it would have been, it's weird to think what it would have been like to follow him in this time. Like here is a seemingly mundane carpenter suddenly going around and has crowds of people surrounding him and he's making the lame walk. Like imagine what it would have been like to have been a disciple and seen him do all of these things. And we see that slowly over time, as Jesus does more and more miraculous things, the disciples begin to just get it. And the moment they grasp that Jesus is more than just another prophet, that he's more than just another miracle worker, is in Mark 27 through 30. And it says, Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his his disciples, who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But you, he said to them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And Jesus strictly warned them to tell no one about him. So this is that turning point in the Gospel of Mark. This is a similar moment to when you finally understand what your dad is teaching you, and then you begin to get shown the deeper and more complex things. And we see that immediately after Peter affirms Jesus as the Messiah, that Jesus goes to teach them much more complex stuff. He begins to teach them about the role of the Messiah, what his job was, what he actually was there to do. Up until this point, he had just been showing them things about who he was, but he never actually taught them who he was and the nature of the Messiah's role. And simply because the disciples were not ready for it until they understood who Jesus was. And the first thing that he goes on to teach them is this. He began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. So notice the language here. Jesus doesn't say that it was probable for him to suffer, or that he might die, or even that he could be raised, or that these things will happen. Yes, they would happen, but that's not the language that Jesus used. Jesus says these are necessary to happen. It is necessary for me to suffer, to be rejected, to die, and to rise again. The cross was not a random act of God. It was not a backup plan, a plan B. God didn't just suddenly decide in, you know, 33 AD, huh, like, I want to redeem humanity. Let's, let's use a cross to display that. Like, no, this was predestined to happen since the beginning of time. The cross was not random. If you look at what the prophet Isaiah said, 700 years before the birth of Christ, uh, this is about the coming uh, coming Messiah. Starting in verse 3 of Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He bore our sickness, carried our pains, pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our iniquities. 
This saying that everything that the Messiah will suffer, that Christ did suffer, was in our stead. It was rightfully ours to suffer. We're the ones who rebelled against God. We're the ones who still rebel against God and always have. The ones who deserve the death that Jesus died. Isaiah says that punishment for our peace was on him. In order for us to have peace, punishment was required. But it says that the punishment for that peace wasn't on us, it was on him. Another way of saying this is that Jesus was the substitute for us. He took God's wrath in our place. And so, going back to why the cross is necessary, okay? The cross is necessary for three reasons, and these are the three reasons of why Jesus says it in this passage. One, these things were predestined to happen. This was God's plan to justify humanity from the very beginning. Acts 2.23 says, Though he, Jesus, was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. You used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. Determined plan and foreknowledge. This was God's plan since the beginning. And when something is predestined, when something is planned by God, it becomes a necessity because there is no stopping it from happening. His will is perfect and his will is definitive. Uh, the second one I have up here is kind of a tie-in with the first, but I chose to separate them. And it's that God prophesied to us and promised us that these things would happen. And so he predestined that the cross would happen. This was his plan. And he revealed that plan to us through the prophecies. And I chose to separate them just to make this clear that this was not random. We already read in Isaiah 53, this was written 700 years before Jesus, and this was a prophecy of the Messiah. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to go through every prophecy Jesus fulfilled. If you want to, like, just go and Google this week how many prophecies Jesus fulfilled, and it's flabbergasting. There were so many of them, even before he was born. His entire life, he was fulfilling prophecy after prophecy. I'm just going to list a couple of them. Genesis 49 prophesies the Messiah will come through the line of Judah. Micah 5.2, it says the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Psalm 41 prophesied the Messiah would be betrayed. Psalm 22 prophesied the Messiah would suffer mockery, insults. He would have his hands pierced and would suffer from thirst. Psalm 18 tells us he would be rejected. God is so, so faithful. And what he says will happen, will always happen. And third, the cross is necessary because without Christ's work on the cross, there is no forgiveness of sins. These four things, the rejection, the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of the Messiah were necessary for atonement. In Romans 3, Paul writes, God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. God is a just judge, and as such, he cannot overlook sin. Sin required punishment. And so instead of pouring out his wrath on all of humanity, he had presented a substitute, a sacrifice, and became the very justifier of those who believe. This could not happen without the cross. And verse 31 marks the transition in Mark's gospel. That from this point in the Gospel of Mark, we see the theme shift from Jesus, the powerful Messiah, to Jesus, the suffering servant. The second half of Mark's Gospel is dominated by the narrative of the cross and the necessity of it. And everything Jesus did in his life pointed towards the cross. And it raises the question for us, is the cross central to your life as well? Is the cross central to your life? 
If we read on, after Jesus prophesies and tells his disciples about this, what happens? We read that Peter then took him aside and began to rebuke him. So remember in verse 29, we read it a couple minutes ago, and Peter's the one who emphatically responds to Jesus' question of, who do you think that I am? You, my disciples, the one who have been following me, who do you think that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. And for the reader, or at least I know for myself, I'm in that moment like, yes, Peter, it's been eight chapters. It's taken you so long to finally get what Jesus is trying to teach you. You get it. And then what's he do? He rebukes Jesus moments after that. And the question is, why does Peter rebuke Jesus? Well, I think it's because Peter disagreed that the rejection, suffering, death, and resurrection of Christ were necessary. Peter rebuked Jesus because Jesus stated those four things were necessary. They must happen. He tells him that those things will never happen to him, that these things can't happen to him. Peter wasn't just scared of the thought. The term rebuke means a sharp disapproval. disapproval. And so Peter wasn't just scared of his friend dying. He wasn't just scared of Jesus suffering. He harshly disapproved with the necessity of the cross. To him and likely the other disciples shared in this feeling, the idea of the Messiah and a suffering servant being the same person was just incompatible to his worldview. Uh, the last time I preached was ironically on Mother's Day. Um, and I, I spent a lot of time going over the um, just ex- expectations the Jewish people had of who the Messiah would be. They expected a political conqueror, someone to come in and defeat Rome, to liberate them from their oppressors. And so when Jesus talks, starts talking about the role of the Messiah, and instead of saying, I'm going to defeat Rome, he says, I'm going to go and suffer and die, this does not compute in the disciples' brains. And so even though they understand finally that Jesus is the Messiah, they don't fully understand what his purpose as the Messiah is, and they reject immediately what Jesus tells them. And their response to Peter's rebuke is that Jesus, in turn, rebukes Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. So I know when I read this verse, I'm always a little bit caught off guard by Jesus calling Peter Satan. And so I want to clear this up, that Jesus is not literally saying that Peter is Satan in this moment. And so what is he saying? Well, think about what Satan is and what he does. He is the, the word Satan or the Satan means the adversary. He is anti-everything of God. His mission is to oppose the will of God. And so here we see Peter inadvertently carry out the mission of Satan in an attempt to oppose the will of God. Well, what is the will of God? Jesus just laid it out to him. The will of God was for the Messiah to suffer, be rejected, die, and rise again. That was the will of God. That was predestined since the beginning of time to happen. And Peter, in saying, no, that can't happen, carries out the will of Satan instead of the will of God because his mind is on the things of this world and not on the things of heaven. I think you can even argue here that similar how Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, that Peter is tempting Jesus to reject the passion. And when I say passion, it's just the Christian language term uh, about the story revolving around the death uh, and resurrection of Jesus. So passion is referring to that little story in the Gospels. So Peter is not literally Satan. But in that moment, he carried out the will of Satan rather than the will of God because he cared more about the things of this world rather than the things of God. 
And how often do you think you find yourself doing the same thing? How often do you carry out the will of Satan rather than the will of God because you're so caught up in the things of this world? I know for me, the answer is far too often. So every time I wake up in the morning, I get distracted before I get into Scripture. Uh, Every time my mind wanders in prayer, and then next thing I know, I find myself not even praying anymore. I'm thinking about something that isn't even important. Every time I worry about whether or not God is going to provide financially for my wife and I, like, in these moments, I'm not only thinking about the things of this world more than God, but I'm not living my life centered around the cross and what Jesus performed on it. So for those of you that were here last week, um, you probably remember that whole little sound fiasco that happened, uh, where the speakers probably sounded like they were going to blow out. Well, fun fact, that was 100% my fault of why that happened. Um, That ear-shattering sound that you heard was actually just sheer reverb. If you don't know what reverb is, so like, I'm speaking right now, my voice is bouncing off the walls. It's creating some natural reverb in this room. So it sounds normal. Well, when we're mixing the the sound for the live stream, there's no actual room. We have to create an artificial room using effects and artificial reverb. Well, I want to add some reverb to the live stream to make it sound, you know, a little bit more realistic. And as you can probably guess by now, it got applied to the live stream, but it also got applied to these speakers and just kind of almost blew them out. Thankfully, it didn't. Like, those of you in the band, you guys did a great job of just playing through it and waiting for that whole fiasco to end before moving forward. But I... I felt as if I had ruined the service and disappointed absolutely every single person in this room. And this wasn't like I felt this sudden, like, strange sense of disappointment, but really the situation just amplified something that I've struggled with for a long time, and it's continuous fear of letting people down. And as such, I feel this deep need to try to earn people's love. And Laura and I were laying in bed that night, um, and I was just, it was like midnight, I was just rambling on talking about this, and she just, like, cut me off in the middle of talking, rolled over and said to me, Jesus did not shed his blood and die for you so that you would still see yourself as who you were before Christ. He has given you a new heart, and by believing this lie, you are denying the work of the cross in your life. I have nothing to say now, and I had nothing to say then. Like, this dead, like, Laura was right, dead on. That lie was, and it admittedly still is, taking the place of the cross in my life. And it leads me to think about the things of man rather than the things of God. And so for you, what is it that often takes the place of the cross in your life and shifts your eyes away from the things of God? Is it money? Maybe it's sex? Maybe a lie that you're believing about yourself? Maybe it's a misplaced identity in something other than Jesus. What is it that takes the place of the cross in your, in your life and shifts your eyes away from the things of God? The cross was central to the life of Jesus. And as such, it must be central to yours. And when you live your life centered around the cross, you'll find, that yourself, you'll find yourself caring more about the things of God than the things of man. The question then becomes, what does this look like? How do I go about doing this? Like, that's great, but how do we practically go about this? The good news is is that Jesus saw this question too, and if we keep reading, he answers this question in the next couple verses. And so verse 34 says, 
Calling the crowd along with his disciples, Jesus said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So notice the progression of these passages. Jesus predicted the passion. His disciples failed to understand it. And then he instructs them on what being a true disciple looks like. That cycle of teaching and correction, teaching of correction, teaching them what discipleship looks like. Before we even evaluate the passage, that's a lesson we learned in discipleship right there, of continuous teaching. So what does being a true disciple look like? Well, it means following Jesus by denying yourself and following Jesus by picking up your cross. And I think when I hear this in our like, 21st century America today, I don't think it quite hits me the same. It's like, yeah, I pick up my cross every day. Like, I do a lot of like, cross-bearing stuff in my life. It, but this is, in reality, a radical, radical calling that Jesus is calling us to here. Every single person who follows him. Note how in verse 34, he said, calling the crowd along with his disciples. The preceding verses was just between Jesus and his disciples. He calls the crowd back to signify to us, those reading it and those listening, that this calling I'm about to state is for everyone who wants to follow me. And it's even made more radical because think about what Jesus just got done doing. He just got done predicting his suffering and his death by means of a cross. Peter then tells him that will never happen. And then Jesus goes on to not, to not only say like, yes, that will happen, but say, if you want to follow me, you must also pick up your cross. He doubles down on what he was saying. To us, this concept of a cross is just lost due to the drastic change in culture. Like, capital punishment in the United States. Like, I say, the, I say that word, and there's probably some of you, like, shift antsily in your seat. Like, it's a heavily debated political topic. Like, only 27 states in the United States permit it. Three of those are only by uh, governor mandate. Last year, the U.S. sentenced 17 prisoners to death. And when that does happen, it's carried out in a private room, and as far as I know, as humanely and painlessly as possible. Rome was a completely different story. In Rome, capital punishment meant a public execution. It was a spectacle, a way for the Roman citizens to come around and celebrate the end of life. Like, when I think of Rome, one of the first things I think of is a Colosseum. Like, you'd have Roman citizens come, thousands of people sit around an arena where they would watch criminals and slaves fight to the death against one another and fight to the death against animals and beasts. Rome loved capital punishment, and their citizens glorified in it. And the worst of their punishments was crucifixion. This was introduced to Rome in 3rd century BC by the Greeks, and for the next 500 years, they perfected it. It was seen as such a shameful way to die that they generally would not execute their own citizens by it. The only way they would is if that citizen betrayed Rome was a traitor. Other than that, it was reserved for the worst of criminals, the people who killed other people. You guys have probably heard the name Spartacus before. Like, very famous from that movie. It was like, I am Spartacus. Well, he was a real person in ancient Rome. And in the first century BC, he led a revolution against Rome. And when the revolution was stopped in 71 BC, <clears throat> it's recorded that Rome crucified 6,000 people on a single day in response to the rebellion. And when they crucified him, they lined him against the main road leading into Rome. And it was a sign to every single person who went in and out of Rome for weeks that if you rebel against us, if you 
do as these people do and don't obey us, you will end up like these people sitting here suffering and dying on these crosses. Crucifixion was an absolutely horrific punishment. And in order to, order to understand the gravity of what Jesus is calling his followers to here, we have to understand the gravity of crucifixion. We see the word cross, we hear the word cross in America today, and we see, I know I see an empty symbol, like an empty cross that globally symbolizes Christianity. It's not a bad thing by any means. Like God redeemed the cross in a way by using it, by using something horrific for something glorious in the redemption of humanity. So it's not a bad thing that we think that. But that's not what the people who heard this at the time would have thought. The crowd, they would have heard Jesus say this and they would not have thought of an empty cross that symbolizes a religion. They would have seen a symbol of death. This is no meager calling that Jesus is stating here. The crowd knew that carrying a cross meant facing official opposition. The cross is used to execute criminals, not innocent people. Jesus is asking here in this statement of carrying a cross, are you willing to be treated as a criminal for the sake of the gospel? The crowd knew that carrying a cross meant shame. When someone was crucified, they would be stripped naked and publicly beaten and mocked for all to see and left to hang naked as well. Jesus is asking, are you willing to be publicly shamed for the sake of the gospel? Carrying a cross, it meant unspeakable suffering. <clears throat> so crucifixion primarily killed by exhaustion and asphyxiation or suffocation. So when someone was crucified, they would have their arms more often than not tied to the cross. Like, I know when we think of crucifixion, we probably think of nails. That was actually a less popular method that was only used when they wanted the person to die a quicker death and suffer more in the process. More often than not, the ropes, their hands would be tied to the cross with ropes. And then upon the cross being hoisted up, their arms would be extended out above their body, it would dislocate the elbows, and all of their body weight would be placed on their arms. And I know we see signs of Jesus with nails through his hands, but the Romans would not have crucified someone with nails through their hands because the hand was not strong enough to hold the body. It would have crucified someone right between these two bones. And because your diaphragm needs to expand, like, as when you're hoisted up there, in order to breathe, you have to lift yourself up with your arms, exhale, let yourself back down. Death will finally come when you're too exhausted to lift, lift yourself up or have just plain given up. This is unspeakable suffering. And this is what Jesus is calling those who want to follow him to. The question is, are you willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel? And the crowd knew all too well that carrying a cross led to death. A person, a person sentenced to crucifixion would be forced to carry their own cross to the execution site. It was an act that was meant to signify that life, this person's life was already over. They are a dead man walking. It was meant to break their entire will to live. Are you willing to lay down your life for the sake of the gospel? This is why denying yourself is absolutely critical in this calling. Because the self, the self sees these things. It seems opposition, shame, suffering, and death, and says, heck no, I want nothing to do with that. I'm running away. Why would I follow you? And this is what I get out of it. <clears throat> but Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself and pick up your cross. This is necessary. 
You can't do one without the other because the opposite of cross-bearing is self-preserving. If you are self-preserving, you cannot follow Jesus and the ex- expectations he has to follow him. If you, Jesus is telling us, if you want to be my disciple, look to yourself before, or look to me before you look to yourself. So imagine if Jesus had just stopped his instruction here and left us with this. It's like, this is great, Jesus. Like, this means we have to pick up our cross and follow you into suffering and death. Like, awesome. Like, I can do that, but why? Why would I willingly choose to deny myself and pick up an instrument, a symbol of death to follow you? The next four verses is Jesus expounding upon this why and really revealing to us this paradox of what authentic life is. Starting in verse 35, Jesus says, Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There's, a, there's an organization in the United States called Open Doors USA. And the whole mission of this organization is to seek to aid persecuted Christians in nations around the world. Similar as what our friend was telling earlier, these Christians who have to live for fear of persecution. This ministry is out there to provide financial support, aid, food, shelter, whatever these Christians need in persecuted countries. And every year they release this thing called a watch list which names the countries where Christians are persecuted the most. And for the past 25 years, the number one country on their list for the most, where most Christians are most heavily, heavily persecuted has been North Korea. This is a country where being discovered as a Christian is a death sentence. In the rare case that a Christian is discovered and not immediately killed, they're thrown into a labor camp where it's estimated that at this moment there's between 50 and 70,000 Christians currently imprisoned in North Korea labor camps. So I bring this up for two reasons. One, it can be so easy to distance ourselves in the United States from the reality of verse 35. For whoever wants to save his mortal life will lose his life and his soul. But whoever loses his mortal life for the sake of the gospel will save his life and his soul. I know this is a reality I've never been faced with. Likely a reality in this country that none of us ever will be faced with. You go overseas, you go to places that our friend has been or probably will go, this is a reality for them. This isn't our reality. And so it would be so easy to distance ourselves from the calling Jesus is stating here. Jesus, the time that Jesus spoke this verse in, he knew that he would be crucified and those that followed him would face the same opposition if you look at the lives of the apostles after Jesus was ascended, like read the book of Acts and see the persecution they suffered. In Acts 7, we see that Stephen was stoned to death because of his faith in Jesus Christ and his proclamation of Jesus as the Messiah. And the result was that the early church scattered. Peter, who we just read rebuked Jesus, would eventually get it. It is, it's recorded that when he finally died, that he refused to be crucified in the same manner as Jesus and instead was crucified upside down because he did not want to be crucified in the same way. Like, they eventually understood it, and this was the reality of the time where Jesus spoke these words in. 
it would have hit differently to them than it hits to us because they saw and they eventually lived the reality of it. Secondly, I bring up the persecution in North Korea because I want to make it clear that Jesus is not saying here to seek out martyrdom. That is not what Jesus is saying. You're not meant to seek out martyrdom. God greatly values human life. In Genesis 1.27, it says that God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. We are made in the image of our creator, an image of God, the God of the universe. And after creation, he said this was very good. After everything else made, he said it was good, but we were the pinnacle of his, his creation. Very good. Psalm 139 tells us, for it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb, and I will praise you. Because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless, and all my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. We were knitted together by God. We are remarkably and wondrously made. He values our mortal lives. In Matthew 10, 23, this is in the midst of Jesus telling his disciples that you will be persecuted and treated as sheep among wolves. He says, when they persecute you in one town, flee to another. Not when they persecute one town, stay there, suffer persecution to the point of death. Like, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if and when they persecute you, flee, escape it if you can. But the reality of verse 35 is that he's saying, if you can't escape it, are you willing to carry your cross? And the full extent of what that means. The Christians in countries like North Korea aren't running around above ground shouting that, hey, I'm a Christian, please come kill me. That's not what is happening. Every year, we do a thing called Secret Church with David Platt. And it's a six-hour-long Bible study. And the reason that it's so long is because it's meant to mimic how... Christians in countries like North Korea have to meet. They meet underground in secrecy, maybe once a month. So when they do meet, it's for six plus hours at a time just to worship and be together. And when the choice is placed before them to either deny Christ and be free from their present persecution or affirm him for the sake of the gospel, knowing what will happen, this is the situation Jesus is describing in verse 35. When that question is placed before you is, do you believe in this man? And if so, are you, like, you will die or you can reject him and save your mortal life. This is the question Jesus is posing to those who want to follow him. And this is a high, high calling. I don't want to downplay this and there's no denying this. Jesus is telling us that, yes, if, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and you have to live by your cross. For those who try to save their own mortal lives by denying me will lose everything. For those who yield themselves to me, you'll gain not only a deeper sense of life, but you'll gain eternal life. Because the life I have to offer is far greater than anything this world has to offer. Jesus then continues the thought, because what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone gain in exchange for his, give in exchange for his life? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is nothing. <laughs> like, this is it's simple economics, really. Like, the thing gained and the thing that it cost. It cost authentic life and what was gained, the world. And when you compare the two against each other, they're really not comparable. Like, 
what is being sacrificed, authentic human life, is worth far more than what is being gained, which is the world. And if this is true of our mortal lives, how much more true of this is in terms of eternal life? Whereas if you sacrifice eternal life for the sake of the world, what kind of trade is that? If you combine this with verse 35, we see that Jesus is telling us if we choose to deny him in the cross, if we choose to deny him and choose this world over him, we are trading everything for nothing. It would be like having a million U.S. dollars and trading it for two million, you know, really, really convincing counterfeits. Like, you know, it might seem like a good trade at the moment. You might even convince yourself that it is a good trade for a little bit. But at the end of the day, you traded something genuine, something authentic, for something fake. In Psalm 49, the psalmist says, Why should I fear in times of trouble? The iniquity of my foes surrounds me. They trust in their wealth and boast of their abundant riches. Yet these cannot redeem a person or pay his ransom to God, since the price of redeeming him is too costly. One should forever stop trying so that he may live forever and not see the pit. Nothing in this world is capable of redeeming a person. We read here that the psalmist's foes, they surround him. Their, their sin and their wealth surround him. They put all their trust in this. But he says, do not fear this, for this wealth is temporary and this will fade away. It cannot redeem. The price, my price is far too high to pay off with anything of this world. The price of my sins. And so the psalmist says, I won't place my trust in the things of this world. I will place my trust in the one who can, can save. And at the end of Jesus' teaching here, he wraps it up with an eschatological statement. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation the Son of Man will also be ashamed of when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. <clears throat> this is the final result of denying Jesus for fear of our mortal lives. If we are ashamed of Christ and seek approval from the world rather than from him, he will be ashamed of us in the final judgment. There's probably been a lot tonight that has been sounded like scary, but this is the first truly terrifying thing said tonight. But on the flip side, Jesus is saying that the reward for denying ourselves, for carrying our crosses, and for standing unashamed of the gospel is far, far greater than anything we could ever gain in this world. Because he offers us the one thing this world can never offer, which is salvation, which leads to eternal life. And the best part is, this is a gift, a free gift given to those who choose to repent and believe not something we have to earn through money or works or sacraments, but a free gift. In the book of Romans, uh, this is Romans 5, 6 through 11, Paul says this, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we are still enemies, we are reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. For while we were still sinners... 
not after you were made perfect, not after you became righteous, not after you paid X amount of money or after you did X amount of good works, but while we were sinners. Jesus prophesied his coming crucifixion and death in Mark 8. And he told his disciples what was to come. And this is Paul and Romans reflecting back upon the impact that the cross had on all of humanity. So why was the cross necessary? Because of this, because of salvation, because we are sinners who desperately need reconciliation. And how are we reconciled? Through faith and faith alone. If you confess with your mouth, mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This isn't from your own doing. This is from faith in the work that Jesus already performed on the cross for you. And the result is that we are justified and declared righteous. Like, that is the good news and the power of the gospel, is that we can stand before a holy and perfect God. And the only thing we technically have is condemnation for all of eternity because of our sin. And yet we stand before this holy God, and because Christ's blood covers us, he, said, he looks at us and says, you are innocent, not guilty. Like, that, that is the power of the gospel and the, and the work of the cross, the work that Jesus performed on the cross. It's to justify sinners and make them right with God. This is why the cross was necessary, because God greatly wanted to redeem us. So in these verses, Jesus is saying, I'm going to do all this for you. And yes, the cost of following might be high, but the reward is so much greater. So don't throw away such an incredible gift for the comforts of this world, because you are trading away everything for nothing. This world is passing away, and if you obtain the world at the cost of your life, what do you have to show for it? Christ is worth our every sacrifice, and he, if it comes down to it, is worth our lives. This is the expectation Jesus lays out for us. If, you want, if we want to live for him, we must deny ourselves, pick up our crosses, and follow him unashamedly. This is really what authentic and true discipleship looks like. And this marks the beginning of an eternal relationship with God. So I'll ask again, what is it that often takes the place of the cross in your life and shifts your eyes away from the things of God? What is it that causes you to be like Peter in that moment where he rebuked Jesus and opposed the will of God? And are you willing to deny yourself, to pick up your cross, and to live unashamedly for the gospel? To pick up your cross and everything that implies facing opposition, facing public shame, suffering, and even death. Is this something you are willing to do for the sake of the gospel? This is what Jesus is asking us in these verses. If you want to follow me, this is what is required. And he's telling us that if you do this, the reward is greater than anything this world could ever hope to offer you. For the one who saves his life, who loses his life for the sake of the gospel, will save it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you just for your goodness, Lord. God, I thank you that you gave us your... I, I thank you that you gave us your son, Lord, to take our place on to take our place, to take the wrath that we deserve, Lord, to be a substitute for us. God, I pray that you can exhort us to live unashamedly for the gospel. 
that if we find ourselves in a situation where we, need to ch- where we have to choose between denying you or affirming you and possibly lo- losing our lives, Lord, that we see the rewards you have promised us for being your follower. God, I praise you that you are just so good and so faithful, that your promises are true, Lord, that you carried out the work of the cross knowing exactly what was, was to come. And God, I pray that tonight that we can just reflect back on what you have done for us, Lord, and the promises you have made for us in the future. Say this in your name. Amen.